I can't help but to feel a little bit sorry for James. It doesn't seem fair. Let me be clear about the James to whom I am referring because there are a number of Jameses in the New Testament. The one in our reading for today, the one for whom I can't help but to feel sorry, is James the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, a disciple of Jesus and one of the first apostles. James and his brother John were the ones that Jesus referred to as sons of thunder. They were passionate disciples and close friends of Jesus. Whenever the Gospels mention Jesus being alone with a small circle of close friends, it's always the same three that are named, Peter, James, and John. That's the James that we are talking about here. But compared to the other two, James doesn't have much of a story following the Gospels. John? John is the beloved disciple. He lives longer than all of the other 12 disciples. He becomes custodian of Jesus' mother, Mary. He writes five books that become part of the New Testament. John has quite a legacy. And Peter? Well, Peter is the Pentecostal preacher and the unquestioned leader, the rock upon which the church was built. He becomes the first bishop of Rome, whom millions of Christians today consider to be the first pope. Peter has quite a story. You would expect the same to be true of James, considering that he was the other of Jesus' three favored disciples. But we know next to nothing about James. Today's reading from Acts 12 is the first time he's mentioned by name in the entire book of Acts, and all that's said about him is that King Herod had him killed with a sword. Among the group of Peter, James, and John, James definitely drew the short straw. Yet his witness was essential. His martyrdom was influential. When King Herod decided that it was time to start persecuting the church, he began with James. That suggests something about James' premier status and pristine reputation among the Christians. After all, if you're going to send a message to the Christians to stop doing what they're doing, you start at the top, right? That's where James was. He was the prime example of a Christian witness. And for that witness, he was killed. Which Jesus said he would be, remember? James and John were the brothers who had gone to Jesus and asked that they be given the places of honor in the kingdom, that they would sit at his right and at his left. And Jesus responded to that request by asking, can you drink the cup which I drink? To which they responded impetuously, of course we can. Jesus told them that they didn't know what they were asking, but that they would indeed drink from the same cup. He was referring to his own death and theirs, that they would follow him by offering their own lives. That is how they would receive the places of honor. And in this story from Acts 12, James becomes the first of the apostles, the first of the original 12 disciples to be murdered for his faith. With his death, James fulfills what had been predicted by Jesus, and he takes his place beside him in glory. This is the second period of persecution that arose in the church. Just after the church began, they had faced persecution from fellow Jews who felt that they were perverting the faith. You remember how Stephen, one of the first deacons, became the first Christian martyr, and how Saul, 
stood and watched as he was killed, approving of the sentence. After Saul was converted, that first wave of persecution died down. Acts 9.31 says that the church experienced a time of peace and was built up during that season of peace. But some years later, King Herod decided that the Christians could no longer be tolerated. Now, this is not the same King Herod who had reigned when Jesus was crucified. This is his brother, Herod Agrippa I, who was every bit as deranged and cruel as his brother. Our story takes place in the year 40, 44 AD, meaning that this is a little more than a decade after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church. The church had grown rapidly over those 10 to 12 years. And the more the Christians grew in number, the more the tensions grew between them and the Jews who did not believe in Jesus. King Herod, who was supposed to be king of the Jews, decided it was some time to do something about it. He began by having James killed. And Luke tells us that pleased the Jews, so King Herod turned his attention next on Peter. He had Peter arrested and thrown into prison. Now, Peter had already been in prison at least twice prior to this, during the first round of persecutions. He and John had been put in prison early on and told to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. But they did not stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. In chapter 5, the high priest had all of the apostles arrested and put in prison. Peter was definitely among them. James and John probably both were as well. That time, an angel of the Lord came at night and opened the prison doors for them. And the apostles then proceeded to go to the temple where they continued to preach about Jesus. The apostles were never deterred in their witness to Christ. No matter what punishment was put against them, no matter what persecution they faced, they kept on proclaiming the name of Jesus until, finally, ten years later, James paid for it with his life. And it looked as if the same thing was about to happen to Peter. That's what was different about this time that Peter got locked up. Previously, he had been put in prison as a warning. This time, he is put in prison just after James has been killed and King Herod intends to do the exact same thing to Peter. There's not going to be any probation this time. This time, Peter is literally on death row. He's being guarded by four squadrons of four guards each. That's 16 guards watching this one man locked up behind bars. Two of the guards are actually chained to Peter. Peter was not getting away this time. Let me pause for a moment there in this story from Acts and consider our other scripture reading for this morning, the one from 1 Peter. It's the kind of advice that we hear a lot in the Bible. Don't be surprised, Peter writes, at the fiery ordeal taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. I often take comfort in passages such as this one. They remind me when I'm going through a difficult time that these things are to be expected, even among the faithful perhaps especially among the faithful. It's easy to forget that. We like to think that if we're doing the right things, then good things will happen to us. 
If we're being good people, then nothing but good will come of it for us. We know that's not always the case, but that doesn't stop us every time we face a painful challenge from asking, why me? Why now? Why this? I don't deserve this. It's natural to feel that way. It's normal to ask those questions. But God doesn't want to leave us stuck in that place because the fact is we all face fiery ordeals at one time or another, in one way or another. Being faithful doesn't mean God will make it easy for us. Being faithful means God will give us the strength to endure. Peter, in this passage of his letter, tells us that when we face those ordeals, when we come up against challenges to our faith, when we face opposition, when we suffer, these are all opportunities for us to draw closer to Christ. These are all ways in which we can identify more intimately, more directly with the trials and sufferings of Jesus himself. And if we face these things in faith, if we share in Christ's sufferings, then we will all the more so share in his glory. We will rejoice all the more fully when Christ's glory is revealed in its fullness. That's a comfort to me, especially when I feel like I'm doing the right thing and getting nowhere, especially when I'm well-intentioned but criticized nonetheless, especially when I feel like I'm suffering for my faithfulness. I don't doubt that Peter and the Holy Spirit wanted these to be words of encouragement to us in these situations even today. But here's why I paused where I did in our story from Acts and why I'm considering this passage from 1 Peter in relation to that story. Because we need to remember when Peter writes about the fiery ordeals sent to test you, when he writes about being reviled for the name of Christ, when he writes about suffering as a Christian, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. Peter experienced these things on a deeper, more intense level than most of us could even imagine. This isn't just a man who's having some bad things said about him. This isn't just a man who has been unfairly judged by friends and family who don't understand him. This isn't just a man who's having a bad day at the office. Peter was a man who was literally locked up in prison because of his faith, and at least on this one occasion was convinced he was about to die for his faith, and ultimately did die. His faith. It is no trivial matter when Peter says, You are blessed when you suffer for Christ, because the Spirit of glory, which is the Spirit of God, is resting on you. Peter knows wherefore he speaks. There is another kind of suffering, though, a kind of suffering which is not blessed, and that is the suffering that comes about as a result of sin. Peter says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, a criminal, or even a mischief maker. If you do those kinds of things, the law is going to come against you, you'll be locked up, you'll be punished, you will suffer. 
and it will all be your fault. Peter is contrasting his own situation, being locked in prison for testifying to the truth, with the situation of a criminal being locked in prison because of their sin, even though they might lead to the same thing temporarily, i.e. being locked in prison, they are not the same type of suffering and they will not lead to the same outcome. Those who suffer because of Christ will also rejoice because of Christ eternally. But the one who suffers because of sin has nothing to look forward to but suffering eternally. In fact, that is the end result of sin, whether you get caught in it or not. You might say to yourself, I'll only suffer if I get caught. It's worth the risk. That's not true at all. Nothing gets by God. Every sin will be punished one way or another, if not in this life, then in the next. Peter's point is that we are all going to suffer one way or another, either in the service of sin or in the service of Christ. For those who choose to suffer the way of Christ, the suffering we experience is but a small, almost insignificant blip compared to the eternal glory that is to come. Do not be surprised when you face the fiery ordeal. That's bound to come upon all of us. But rejoice when you share in the suffering of Christ because you are blessed. The spirit of glory, which is the spirit of God, is resting on you. Now back to the story from Acts. I paused in the story with Peter locked in prison James had just been killed and the Jews were pleased by it. King Herod intended to do the same to Peter. He was under the watch of 16 guards. He was chained to two of them. Peter knew he was not getting away this time. But he did. Peter did get away once again. While he was asleep in his cell, and isn't that something, Peter knows that the next morning he's going to be executed. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He is going to die in a matter of hours, and he's sleeping like a baby. What peace he must have had in his soul to be able to sleep that night. He knew that no matter what happened, his future was secure with God. As he slumbered peacefully in his cell, an angel of the Lord showed up once again. The chains fell off. The angel directed Peter to get up and follow him. Peter did so, imagining that he was seeing a vision or dreaming a dream. The angel led Peter out and with the doors miraculously popping open, with the guards miraculously not seeing a thing. Once Peter was free, the angel disappeared and Peter came to himself, realizing that God had freed him once again. Miraculous and amazing as that story is, it does raise a question for us. Why the two different results for Peter and James? This is now the third time Peter has been freed from prison, and he will go on to have many more years of fruitful ministry as a leader of the church. 
James was struck down and killed instantly, leaving no church legacy other than his death. Again, I feel bad for James. He really got the raw end of the deal here, didn't he? Then again, maybe not. Later, when the Apostle Paul was in a situation where he didn't know if he was going to live or die, he said if it were up to him, he would just as soon die and go home to be with the Lord. At least then he would be in heaven with Jesus and wouldn't have to keep fighting the same battles over and over again. Could it be that James had the same mindset, that his instant martyrdom was a blessing for him? But I don't think the point of this passage has to do with whether it's better to live or better to die. The point of the passage is that no matter whether we live or die, we do it unto the Lord. Whether we are successful or face opposition, whether we find favorable circumstances or have to endure great suffering, whether we get our way or whether we don't, whatever we do, we do it for the Lord. James and Peter faced two very different outcomes. But they both, in their own way, testified to the truth and the glory of Jesus Christ. Both of them were willing to live. Both of them were prepared to die. Both of them were happy to serve. Both of them were made to suffer. Both of them were promised glory. One way or another, they both witnessed to Jesus Christ with their very lives. And that, my friends, that is precisely what is asked of each one of us as well. Any who would come after me, said Jesus, must take up their cross and follow me. There are any number of ways that we can do that. For most of us, it doesn't mean facing literal martyrdom. Although it might, there are Christians in the world even today who put their very lives on the line for the sake of the gospel. But even if that's not God's plan for you, what sacrifice are you making? What service are you giving? What finances are you offering? What time are you making? What witness are you providing? And are you suffering? it. Are you suffering for it? Are you sacrificing of yourself to the point of discomfort, to the point of pain? And if the answer is no, then is it enough? Is it enough? The cross is a sacrifice. The cross is painful. The cross is a giving over of life. Throughout the New Testament, we are told that we will suffer for our faith. If you're not hurting even a little bit because of your commitment to your faith, if you're not being pressed outside of your comfort zone, if you're not being challenged to give more of yourself than what you want to give, whether that be money or time or volunteer tasks or whatever, might it be that the Holy Spirit is compelling you that you need to go further in your faith? One way or another, you have to be pressed beyond yourself to be united 
with Christ. One way or another, you have to show that the Lord is God and you are not. One way or another, you have to surrender yourself unto God and suffer along with Christ that you too might receive his glory. If you refuse to do that, well, then I feel far worse for you than I do for James. 